you would, open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. Today, we'll be looking at two chapters, 37 and 38. 37, I think, will be very familiar, uh, the story of Joseph and how his brothers uh, sold him into slavery. 38, probably not so familiar. In fact, it's one of those chapters where people say, I can't believe that's in the Bible, and why is that in the Bible? And the Lord willing, we will see uh, the wonder of it and the truth of it. Isaac has died. Marks the end of the second generation of God's chosen people. First was Abraham, and then there was Isaac. The line continues through Jacob, who was chosen by God's grace to be the line through which God's promises that he made to Abraham, all nations would be blessed through him, would be fulfilled. And yet, from chapter 37 to the end of Genesis, it's got 50 chapters. Much of it is not about Jacob, but about one of his sons, some of his sons, but mainly about Joseph. And it's interesting because uh, Joseph was not the son through whom the Messiah would come. Um, It was Judah. And yet much of the book is about Joseph because it is through Joseph that Jacob's family survives. So, Let's look at the first 11 verses here of chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph was a young man of 17. A young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, their father's wives. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, and suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Verse number two starts out, this is the account of, and this is a phrase that we find Ten times in the book of Genesis. This is the tenth and final time. The first time is with creation. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Then of Adam's line of Noah. This is the account of Noah. Of his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then of Shem, the Semites, the Semitic people come from Shem. And this is uh, the, the line through which the Messiah would come. This is the account of Terah, 
the father of Abram. Uh, this is the account of Abraham's son, Ishmael. And this is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. This is the account of Esau. And then finally here in chapter 37, verse 2, this is the account of Jacob. Just a side note, people might wonder why is Ishmael mentioned, why is Esau mentioned? I spoke about this a bit last Sunday. We find a pattern in Genesis that those who play but a small part in the story of salvation take their bows and then sort of leave the stage. And so we are told about Ishmael and his 12 sons and then no more. And then we are told about Esau and his sons and then no more. The phrase this is the account of is always looking ahead. It's always looking forward to a new stage in the narrative. But what is unexpected is we are told this is the account of Jacob, and then it's mainly about his son, Joseph. Um, we shouldn't, that shouldn't throw us because that happened with Terah. This is the account of Terah. And then Terah is set aside, and it's all about Abram, who later becomes Abraham. Here's the timeline. At this point where the narrative begins, Joseph was 17 years old, which would be after he and Jacob, his family, left Paddan Aram. He was probably six years old when this happened, maybe seven, because if you remember, he served 14 years for Leah and Rachel, and then he stayed another six years. So somewhere in there, uh, Joseph was born. Um... By the way, it says that he was the favorite son because he was born to Jacob in his old age. Um, what about Benjamin? Well, Benjamin hasn't been born yet. Okay, if you remember, they go to Bethel and they're on their way south when Rachel goes into labor, has a difficult time, and actually dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. So at this point in the story, Joseph is the baby of the family. Okay, And now the account is when the trouble with his brothers begin. He worked with his brothers by the two uh, maidservants, uh, Bilhah and Zilpah. So Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. Um, and Joseph basically tattled on them. He, he brought a bad report to his father, like, yeah, these guys are slackers, they're not doing the job they're supposed to do. And it marks the beginning of his troubles with them. He tells his dad about them. His brothers hate him because he is, in fact, their father's favorite. And they hate him because of his dreams. And then at the end, in verse number 11, they were jealous of him. Jacob didn't help the situation. And if anybody should have known better, it should have been Jacob. Because Esau was Isaac's favorite. He was his mother's favorite. And he knew that favoritism was not a good thing. Because, you know, Isaac tried to somehow skip over him and go to Esau. Um, in essence, he basically poured gasoline on the fire. There's already this simmering, the brothers don't like him. And then he gives Joseph this fancy coat, this uh, oh, coat of many colors, as traditionally it is known. Uh, it's a richly ornamented robe. And the brothers just hate Joseph all the more for it. On the other hand, Joseph didn't help the situation either. He has at least two dreams which came from God. We don't know this at that point, and neither did he. 
um, he just had dreams and he felt like he had to tell his brothers about these dreams that he's had. And in the dreams, he is the hero and everyone has to bow down to him. He's the big guy and everyone has to acknowledge him as their Lord. Okay. It is his pride that caused him to tell his brothers his dreams. Whether or not he knew them to be true, we now know, yeah, these will be fulfilled. He didn't know that, but he, somehow he felt like he had to tell his brothers these dreams. The first dream is that he and his brothers were binding sheaves in the, of grain in the field. That is, they harvested and then they tie it up and you know, put stacks of them. They're sheaves. Um, by the way, this would seem to indicate that at this point in the story, they're not only shepherds, but they also are farmers. That in fact they have planted and they have harvested grain. Joseph's sheaf is above all the rest, and the eleven sheaves have they bow down, or the ten sheaves bow down to him. His brothers rejected the notion. Yeah, there's no way we're ever. We don't like you, and we're never going to bow down to you. Second dream is that the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to him, and Jacob rebuked him for implying that he. And Rachel, because at this point, Rachel is not dead, we think. But there are 11 brothers, which would seem to indicate that Benjamin had been born. So the timeline is is a bit shaky. But Jacob isn't happy about this. You mean to tell me that I, your father, am going to bow down to you? Unlikely. But he did not forget the dream. He kept the matter in mind. And now we come to the first trial of Joseph. Remember the series is trial and grace. Now the trial. Joseph is ultimately about to enter a series of trials that ultimately will re- result in grace. But he didn't know that. His brothers didn't know that. All we know is his brothers hated him. Verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flock near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off to the va- from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I am looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. Dothan, by the way, is north of Shechem. So he starts out in Hebron, moves north to Shechem, and then farther north to Dothan. Verse 18, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take, them back, take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of the robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into a cistern. Now the cistern was empty, 
there was no water in it. After explaining the causes for their hatred of Joseph, the author now goes on to explain how that hatred is expressed. That is, they want to kill him. It's sort of interesting that Jacob would send Joseph by himself. He's 17 years old. And let's say for the sake of argument that he was a mature young man. But to send him cross-country to find his brothers, um, perhaps he thought they were close by. But in any case, it seems rather strange that Jacob would send them. Um, he gets to Shechem and he's sort of wandering around and like the guy asks him, who are you looking for? My brothers, oh, they moved on to Dothan. And so when he gets, he goes toward them and when they see him, they're like, okay, here comes the dreamer. Here's the dreamer boy. And they plotted to kill him. Question, how did they know it was Joseph from a distance? He was wearing the robe. They could tell. They may not have been able to see his facial features, but they saw the robe and they know, okay, here's our father's favorite wearing that fancy robe. Here comes the dreamer. Uh, Let's kill this guy. Let's kill him and then throw him into a cistern and and tell our father that, in fact, a wild animal killed him. Because of jealousy, they plowed to kill him. But Reuben, who at this point in the story is not well, he's the firstborn, but remember, he, he slept with his father's uh, handmaid. Um, but he seeks to intervene. He's the oldest, Joseph is the youngest, and he wants to rescue the youngest from the anger of the other brothers. And he's like, okay, let's not kill him. Let's, don't shed blood. Let's just throw him into this dry well, this cistern. Um, and his plan was, when everybody else is off doing stuff, I'll get him out and take him back to our father. The brothers agree with this. They take the coat off of Joseph and they throw him into the cistern. Now the story takes a turn that we're familiar with, but certainly not what Reuben expected. Verse 25. As they sat down to eat their meal. By the way, let me just say, I was going to say this later, but how cold-hearted are these guys? They throw their youngest brother into a dry well and then they say, hey, it's lunchtime. Let's, Let's break for lunch. They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. They were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So as I said, the fact that they sat down to eat just tells us volumes about these brothers, how hard-hearted they could be while their brother was in the cistern. I mean, I, I would like to think that Joseph wasn't just there quietly. He was asking, you know, why are you doing this to me? crying out to them, and they're like, yeah, don't bother us, we're having lunch. Judah comes up with a plan because they notice that there's a caravan of merchants. They're Ishmaelites. They're the descendants of Ishmael. Um, And at this point, it's sort of hazy. Are they on the 
Dothan is on the east side of the Jordan River, but Gilead is on the west side. In any case, he says, let's sell him. So then he'll be gone, and we don't have to kill him. He is, after all, our flesh and blood. And they do sell him for 20 pieces of silver, or 20 shekels of silver. Reuben's plan fails. Obviously, verse 29, when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. Even though Reuben was the oldest, he was overruled. And we don't know where he was, if he had gone to check on the sheep or something, but he wasn't there when this whole you know, exchange happened where, like, hey, let's sell him, and they sell him uh, to the, the Ishmaelites. By the way, you'll notice it says Ishmaelites and Midianites. Uh, these names are interchangeable. Uh, the peoples were uh, one and the same. So when the brothers come up with the plan, Reuben's not there, and they do it, and they come up with a cover-up. They take the robe, because they're not going to let the robe go with Joseph. They kill a goat and splash its blood on it, and then they're going to show this to their father. Uh, we found this, so it looks like something bad happened to Joseph. Verse 32, they took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So that his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar. These guys, cold-hearted, hard-hearted. Dad, do you, is this, does this look like Joseph's robe? They know it is. And they know that Jacob will recognize it as such. You'll notice, by the way, at least the way the text is written, um, they don't mention Joseph's name. Is it your son's robe? They don't say Joseph. I mean, their hatred of him continues even though they have sold him. Um, Jacob accepts their account of things. He does not seem suspicious at all. He is overwhelmed with grief. He tears his clothes, which was a sign of mourning in that time. Actually, among Jews, even today, uh, when someone dies, they make a cutting of of their coat and then tear it. It is a sign of mourning. His sons and his daughters, it's the only plural mentioned, so I think these are his daughters-in-law. They try to comfort him, and he, he will have none of it. Joseph was his favorite son, and now he is gone. And then we're told at the very end, Joseph is taken to Egypt and he's sold to Potiphar, the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. That part will pick up in chapter 39. But now we come to chapter 38, which interrupts the story of Joseph. And perhaps it is... A, a, 
let's say if you've never heard anything about the Bible, you know nothing about scripture, and you're reading the book of Genesis. When you come to the end of chapter 37, and Joseph is sold in Egypt, and then 38 is the story of Judah, you're like, oh, I guess we're not going to hear about Joseph anymore. We know that the story is going to continue because we're familiar with the book of Genesis. Um, but for the first time reader, um, for someone who knows nothing about the story, it seems that the story of Joseph is finished. This is the most unusual chapter in scripture, chapter 38. It is important to establish that Judah is, in fact, the line through which the Messiah will come. His son Perez is mentioned in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. But I think above all, it presents a real contrast between Joseph and his brothers. Uh, Though Joseph was prideful, we... uh, Yeah... What Judah did is not flattering. The light that is cast on him, it's like, why don't you talk about the other brothers instead of Judah? So, verse 1, Judah's three sons. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua, He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kizib that she gave birth to him. The chapter opens at that time, which is seen as sort of a general designation. The sequence isn't clear. I would suggest that, in fact, this happens after Uh, the brothers sell Joseph. And Judah, for whatever reason, just cannot be associated with his brothers any longer. And so he goes over to a place named Adullam and he meets someone there, uh, a man named Hira. And while he is there, he meets a young woman. We're never told her name, interestingly enough. We're told her father's name. She's the daughter of Shua. He marries her. And they have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. By the way, he married a Canaanite woman. You may remember that Abraham told his servant, do not get a wife for Isaac from the Canaanites. Isaac and Rebekah told Jacob, don't marry a Canaanite woman. Go to Paddan Aram and find a wife there. Esau disobeyed, or the word used is disgusted his mother by marrying Canaanite women. So what Judah does here, in light of what we've seen thus far, is not not right. He should not have married a Canaanite woman. Verse 6. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. 
Then Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. When the firstborn son, Ur, uh, came of age, his father, Judah, got him a wife. Her name is Tamar. Um, It's fascinating that her name is quite prominent in this, whereas Judah's wife's name is never mentioned. So Er and Tamar get married, and for whatever reason, all we're told, he was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so God killed him. Uh, We're not told the specifics, either of his wickedness or how he died, simply that God put him to death. So at this point in the story, the firstborn dies, no children. It is the responsibility of the second son to impregnate the widow of his brother so that his brother's line would continue. So people could not say, oh, it's too bad. Uh, they didn't have any children. His line ends with that. Okay? Judah tells him to perform the duty of a brother-in-law. Uh, this practice is spelled out in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy chapter 25. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. His husband's bro- her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. This is what Judah tells Onan. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of her brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town, of his town, shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Okay. In this passage, we see that this is already the practice. At least Judah tells Onan, this is what you're supposed to do. But Onan did not fulfill his duty because he knew that the child the son that Tamar would have would not be his. Okay. He didn't want there to be a child that was biologically his child, but would not be known as his child. So what he did, and the scripture is quite explicit, and this is why people often skip over chapter 38. Um, it happened more than once, though. Uh, we're not told how many times he had sexual relations with Tamar, but the text says that whenever he lay with her, you know, he didn't want to get her pregnant, so he spilt his seed on the ground. Uh, That is to say, he wanted to take advantage of the situation. He wanted the pleasure of his relations with Tamar, but not the obligation. He did not want the obligation. And God kills him. This is not the family of the unsandaled. This is someone who is dead. Ur is dead. Onan is dead. 
there's still one more. And so Judah tells Tamar, go back to your father's house, dress as a widow, and when it's time, um, I will let Sheila marry you. Okay? But in fact, Judah's afraid that her, his sons keep dying because of Tamar. So he's got three sons, two are dead. He's really reluctant to let Sheila marry her. Tamar comes up with a plan. Verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the son of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adumalamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which was on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge shall I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. For all the negative things about Judah, he is presented as a real human being here, that when his wife died, he grieved. And when he had recovered from his grief, so we might think because of the story of Joseph and the wickedness of his sons that this is a cold-hearted man, but no, this is a man who grieved for his wife. Um, he decides to go up to Timnah where his men, the men who work for him, are shearing the sheep, um, and his friend uh, Hira goes with him. Tamar is told about this, and she's been waiting at her father's house for her to be given to Sheila so that she can have a son for Ur. So this will be the line of Ur that will continue uh, through the child that they will have. And that hasn't happened. So she's pretty suspicious that it's not going to happen. That Judah is not in fact going to say to Sheila, you need to fulfill the duty of her brother-in-law. So she takes off her widow's clothes. And this is a cultural thing that is difficult for us. Apparently there was certain apparel that when people saw what she was wearing, oh, you're a widow. She took that off and she put on clothes and a veil which would mark her as a prostitute. And for us that seems rather strange because prostitution, I think, in our time is you know, the face, you know, everything is being shown. But here she covers her face. I find it interesting. I mean, she comes up with a plan. She gets, you know, she sets herself on the side of the road what she knew about Judah, I mean, don't you find it interesting that she thought, if I dress as a prostitute, my father-in-law will want to stay with me, be with me. I mean, that doesn't say, very, doesn't say good things about Judah, um, that he would, she knew he would want her services. 
Judah sees her. He doesn't recognize her because she's wearing the veil. Uh, he wants to sleep with her. He's very up, you know, upfront about that. And he offers a goat as payment, but obviously he doesn't have the goat with him. So she says, well, give me something as collateral. So he has, in fact, a seal that is on a cord around his neck and a staff. And so she, he gives them to her as collateral that will be in exchange for the goat when the goat is brought. Uh, he sleeps with her uh, and she becomes pregnant. So there's a sort of a time compression here because pregnancy doesn't happen immediately. Um, but she goes home and she takes off the veil and she puts on her widow's clothes again. Then verses 20 to 23, and in my notes I have, this is embarrassing. Uh, meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Um, then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you didn't find her. Uh, prostitution in much of the ancient world was often associated with religion. Certainly in the first century, the early church um, in Corinth and Ephesus, if a man wanted to go and worship a goddess, he would go to the temple with a sacrifice and have sexual relations with one of the priestesses. That's what they did. Sounds very strange to us. So if she's a prostitute, she must be a shrine prostitute, that is with a particular religious shrine. But not all the Canaanites did that. So when Hira comes and says, where's the shrine prostitute? Like, we don't do that here. You know, that's, that's, there hasn't been one here in ages. We don't do that. Um, and so he goes back and he tells Judah, uh, I couldn't find her. And Judah's like, just let's forget it. Otherwise, we'll become a laughing stock um, and just let her keep what she has. But then the truth comes out in verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. Word comes to Judah, you know what? For a period of time, your daughter-in-law was a prostitute and now she's pregnant. Um, I mean, I don't know that she tried to keep it a secret, but I mean, if she dresses as a prostitute, I mean, people are going to notice. And she is pregnant. So Judah's like, okay, bring her out and we're going to burn her to death. This is what you do to someone who is guilty of adultery, at least in that time. As Tamar is about to be brought to Judah, she's like, uh, send these to Judah and ask him to look at them and examine them and see if he recognizes them. Does this sound familiar? Is this your son's robe? 
Is this Joseph's robe? Is this your seal? Is this your staff? Um, as we'll see in a bit, there are really strong connections between chapters 37 and 38. She admits her guilt. Judah admits his guilt. Um, not of sexual immorality, interestingly enough, but of his failure to give his son, Sheila, to Tamar. And so Judah, in a very strange way, performs the duty of the brother-in-law to his daughter-in-law. His sons were, in fact, supposed to get her pregnant. Ur does not, and God, God kills him. Ur refuses to, and God kills him. And then Judah refuses to give Sheila. So it is Judah, the father, who ends up fulfilling that duty. Rather strange. And then verse 28, to the end of the chapter, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, the other brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was given the name Zerah. I don't know much about giving birth, but this seems rather an odd story that uh, one of the two boys in her womb sticks his hand out so that they're able to tie a thread and then pulls back in and then somehow the other, the, the other twin comes out first. Um, Perez is the beginning of the royal line. Perez is the one through whom the Messiah will come. So Perez is born first and then Zerah. So now the question is, why is this in the Bible? And why is it at this point in Genesis? And perhaps the bigger question is, why are we even studying it today in church? Isn't this one of those passages that we would rather skip over? Um, I mentioned um, what we saw on Mother's Day, which is the passage about the rape of Jacob's daughter, Dinah. That the, the commentary that I look to the most for Genesis uh, completely skips over it and says it's a dark thing and, and if you want to read it, read it for yourself. And when it comes to chapter 30, it does the same thing. It does not mention it at all. Because this is, this is something that certainly you wouldn't read in mixed company, but we have, or to, with children around because you have to explain certain things that they're too young to understand. Why is this in the Bible and why are we studying it? Well, why is it at this point in the book of Genesis? Because I'm not sure that it's chronologically in sync. Uh, I said that Judah separated himself from his brothers after they sold Joseph, but I'm guessing. I mean, there's, there's no proof of that. Um, why is it right after chapter 37? Because there are connections between the two. Both stories involve deception. Uh, the brothers deceive their father into thinking that Joseph is dead. They take his robe and pour goat's blood on it and say, is, is this it? And then Tamar deceives Judah. And then when it is time for her to be put to death for her faithlessness, her unfaithfulness, she's like, well, whose do these belong to? 
there's deception, and it's family deception. The brothers deceive Jacob, and Tamar deceives her father-in-law, Judah. In both cases, they are called to examine the evidence. Is this your son's robe? Who does this belong to, this seal and this staff? A goat is mentioned in each account. In chapter 37, they kill the goat and put its blood on the robe. But here, goat is used as payment for Tamar's services. So while the story of Joseph is interrupted, we're like Jacob at this point. We're sort of in the dark. We think that that Joseph is gone. Something important is being told. In the genealogy of Jesus, as recorded in Matthew chapter 1, both Tamar and Perez are mentioned. Tamar is the first of four women who are mentioned in that genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, who was a prostitute. Tamar dressed as a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth, and then Bathsheba. And her name is not even given. She who was Uriah's wife. Perez is also mentioned in the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth, by the way, is the story of a leverate marriage where Boaz marries Ruth to raise up a line after her dead husband. And they named him Obed, that is Ruth's son. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Perez is also mentioned in Luke's account of the genealogy of Jesus. Out of this twisted, dysfunctional family mess in which Er is killed by God for his wickedness, Onan enjoys the benefits of sleeping with Tamar but doesn't want to get her pregnant, Judah refuses, it seems, to allow his third son to marry her, He's a father-in-law who does not keep his promise. He is deceived by her. He gets her pregnant, thinking she's a prostitute. From this mess comes the Lord Jesus. Here comes the Messiah. You may remember that Joseph, when he found out Mary was pregnant, wanted to divorce her quietly, did not want to put her to public shame. But he's told in a dream, she, that is Mary, will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And for what we've looked at today, there's plenty of sin. We have these brothers who hate Joseph. We have Joseph who is filled with pride. Seems on intent, on sort of letting his brothers know I'm going to be the big cheese and you guys are going to bow down to me. His brothers sell him into slavery. They deceive their broken-hearted father. How could they even look at him to know that they had sold his son into slavery? Judah's sons are wicked. Judah did not keep his promise. 
Tamar dresses up as a prostitute and deceives her father into getting her pregnant. So when we hear the words, he will save his people from their sins, we begin to have a pretty good idea of what this means. Usually when we hear this, we think of us, and and indeed, he will save us from our sins. But his people, the line he came from, salvation will come through Jesus. When we continue the story, the story of Joseph will progress. But already, already we've got a hint that in fact he is a type of the Messiah that is to come. And that is seen in the fact that his brothers sell him for 20 pieces, 20 shekels of silver. Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. But now he who is a type of the coming Messiah, and at this point it's going to be 1,500 years before Jesus comes. But here in the book of Genesis, we have someone who is a type of him. And so out of chapter 38 and, well, 37 as well, all this wickedness and all this sin will come the Lord Jesus to save his people from their sins. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that we are sometimes puzzled by what we read in Scripture that we think to ourselves, if we were writing the Bible, we would not include such things. The Bible is brutally honest. It tells us of the sins of your people. It doesn't hide them. It doesn't present them in a favorable light just to make them look good. It tells us the truth. And the truth is we are sinners. The people mentioned in scripture are sinners. They are in need of a Savior. We are in need of a Savior. The Lord Jesus came to save us from our sins. He came to save his people from their sins. There were godly people in his ancestry, but there were some fairly wicked people as well. And yet through the mess of all this deception, Jesus comes forth. We are grateful for the grace you have shown throughout history and in our lives. And as we will see in the life of Joseph, who goes through various trials, but ultimately will find grace. Help us to realize that, yes, we we may go through difficult times, but you're always there with us. You are always gracious, and grace is always there with us. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.